Vita set her jaw and nodded at the city in greeting, as a boxer greets an opponent before a fight. She stood alone on the deck of the ship. The sea was wild and stormy, casting salt spray 30 feet into the air, and all the other passengers on the ocean liner, including her mother, had taken sensible refuge in the cabins. But it is not always sensible to be sensible. Vita had slipped away and stood out in the open, gripping the rail with both hands as the boat crested a wave the size of an opera house. So it was that she alone had the first sight of the city. There she is, called the deckhand, in the distance, portside. New York climbed out of the mist, tall and grey-blue and beautiful, so beautiful that it pulled Vita forwards to the bow of the boat to stare. She was leaning over the railing as far out as she dared when something came flying at her head. She ducked and gasped. A seagull was chasing a young crow across the sky, pecking at its back, wheeling and shrieking in mid-air. Vita frowned. It wasn't, she thought, a fair fight. She felt in her pocket, and her fingers closed on an emerald green marble. She took aim, a brief and angry calculation of distance and angle, drew back her arm, and threw. The marble caught the seagull on the exact centre of the back of its skull. The gull gave a scandalised cry of an angry duchess, and the crow spun in the air and sped back towards the skyscrapers of New York. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Angus Dalton here with you. You just heard Catherine Rundle reading from her latest novel, The Good Thieves. Catherine spent a large part of her childhood in Zimbabwe and has written novels about children who live in the hidden spaces above Paris, a girl who teaches wolves to be wild again, and plane-wrecked kids surviving the Amazon jungle. She's here with me at Sydney Town Hall. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for joining me. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I would love to say welcome to our sunny shores, but I can't really do that today. It's quite (laughs) miserable outside. It will be lovely again tomorrow, I'm sure. Now, uh, did you start today with your customary cartwheel? (laughs) (laughs) No, that thing on the internet that says she starts every day with a cartwheel was true when I was 22, and I've been trying to get them to take it off for the last 10 years because I'm now 31 and I also live in a much smaller flat which if I tried to cartwheel would just create an avalanche of books. (laughs) That's quite a good image. I was thinking it's a much better way than uh, how I start my day which is crying in the shower. (laughs) um, So uh, your hobbies apart from writing include tightrope walking, roof walking and I read that you're learning to fly a plane. Um, Is it safe to say when you're not carrying out what I'm assuming is quite a safe activity of writing, you're attracted to the more death-defying? I think most of the things that I love have in common being up high and being able to see the world from up above. So it's actually more to do with wanting to see a very specific vision of the world and also somewhat with being quite shy and loving to be able to watch the world without being watched. Because yeah, so, no one looks up. Exactly, no one looks up. So if you're climbing a building and looking down, you can see everything without being watched from an aeroplane. You can see the world and the world can't see you. Yeah, that reminds me of um, one of your interests that I was so fascinated to read about, roof walking. 
what is that and how did you get interested in it? So there's a long history in some English universities of climbing old buildings. So it started in Cambridge and in Oxford, and there are manuscripts in the libraries in Oxford that detail how you can climb some of the oldest buildings. Like, you know, don't put your hand on the gargoyle, it'll come off. And I first started reading about this, and I've always loved climbing ever since I was very young. And so I started climbing rooftops. So I was climbing um, the rooftop of my college, All Souls College in Oxford, um, when I had the idea for rooftoppers, which is, of course, about kids who live up on the rooftop. So often the hobby comes first and the book is sparked by it. Fantastic. Um, was it quite dangerous, this sort of hobby? Or? <laughs> it's not that dangerous because I would never climb anything wherever I felt I'd die. Like the worst thing could happen is I might break a rib. Um, it is illegal, but I have never yet been caught. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> um, it reminded me, I was talking to an author earlier in the year who wrote a book um, that was partly centred on MIT, where, you know, lots of hackers are sort of born and they do a similar thing where it's like a form of physical hacking where they climb up through the buildings of MIT. And I was like, is there just all these subcultures of people climbing around, you know, university campuses everywhere? And why didn't I get in on that when I was <laughs> at uni? Like, sounds amazing. <laughs> um, so you lived in Zimbabwe for 10 years as a child, is that right? A little bit less than that. But um, my mother is Zimbabwean. So every winter we used to go over to Zimbabwe to escape the cold. Um, and so for me, it's always felt like one of my homes. It, and I go back every year because my mother still lives there. The early bits of my childhood were spent in London, where I now live. And I think in Zimbabwe, what you get that you perhaps wouldn't get otherwise is a sense of the wildness of the world. So you can drive for maybe 30 minutes and be out in the bush, which I know, of course, will be familiar to many Australians, but of course in England that isn't the case. And, you know, you would go to a shopping centre and there would be monkeys trying to steal your ice cream. And we used to ride horses through the bush and so you could weave in and out of herds of zebras. And this idea that you could be very close to the natural world, it becomes something that you love and something that you desperately want to cherish and protect if you can. Yeah, no, it's true a lot of Australian cities are surrounded by bush, but that bush doesn't have lions in it, so it's <laughs> slightly different. Um, was there anything about spending all that time in Zimbabwe that you feel sort of set you up for a career in storytelling? Maybe, in that my first story was about a girl who grows up in Zimbabwe and was based very loosely, not factually, but emotionally on my own childhood. Um, so I guess it sort of kick-started my entire career. So uh, was there quite a culture shock when you moved from Zimbabwe to Brussels? It was a huge culture shock. Um, I had got used to doing things like spending most of my day without shoes on and school ended at 1pm and you had the rest of the day to play in the sun. And when I got to Brussels, it was much colder, <laughs> much rainier. And also there was a sort of emphasis, a sort of teenage culture, an emphasis on being cool that didn't really exist in Zimbabwe. So I had to learn as quickly as I could what it was to be a teenager, which I hadn't really understood before. It took me a long time to stop being miserable. All of your books, The Good Thieves included, even though it's set uh, mostly just in, in inner city um, New York, are filled with creatures. What were sort of some of the main creatures that you spent your time with in Zimbabwe? So we had all through my life a huge number of pets. So I've always wanted 
to be close to animals. So we had dogs and guinea pigs. And occasionally, when you were driving, say, from one city to another in Zimbabwe, you'd go past monkeys and baboons and donkeys and goats. And there would be a sense that the world is just populated with wildness. And you feel very, very strongly that you are not alone in this world. I think in cities, you can easily forget that human beings are not the most important thing on this planet. We don't have primacy. In cities, all you get are pigeons, which is quite easy to despise. You despise the world at your peril in Zimbabwe. Well, from one wilderness to uh, the other, this is just me asking about all your worldly adventures. I'm sorry, but we'll get to the good things, I promise. <laughs> um, but you sort of found the story for one of your other books, The Explorer in the Amazon, and you visited there for your research, right? What is it like to move through that wilderness? It's absolutely breathtaking. I think it remains the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Um, so The Explorer is about four children whose aeroplane crash lands in the Amazon and they find a map and they follow... Uh, it down a river on a raft and a lot of the things that happen in that story happen to me so there's a scene where a pod of pink wild river dolphins come swimming under their raft and in real life while I was out there with a friend these dolphins came swimming under our boat and even though we were fully clothed we just pulled off our boots and dived in after them and they were maybe a meter away from us and you could see that they had these scars on their backs where they'd got into fight with alligators and you could see the softness of their eyes and they trust you because there isn't anything hunting them in the wild and then we learned how to catch piranhas for dinner and how to hunt tarantulas just in case you get desperate and so all of those details I wanted to put in the story because I think that's what you do when you write a story you're trying to offer children another slice of the world. That's extraordinary about those pink dolphins because they're some of the rarest creatures in the entire world, right? It was absolutely breathtaking. And of course, they're pink. They're bright pink. I mean, you think at first when you're seeing them, you're possibly drunk. It's incredible. Then I didn't realise that um, piranhas could become the hunted as well. You can eat piranhas? Piranhas are delicious. They're very meaty because they eat meat themselves. They're carnivores, so they taste more like chicken than like fish. Is that the weirdest thing you ate in the Amazon? So I caught a tarantula and I was offered the chance to eat it. And at the time I thought, mm, maybe I'll skip it. Um, so instead I asked some people what it was like and I believed their description. And then when the explorer won the Costa, I realized that sales were sort of going much higher. And I started to worry that, you know, in a world of fake news, I had... Um, put a description of the children eating tarantulas that was untrue. So I bought a tin tarantula um, uh, at one of the posher shops in London and ate that instead. Um, and it turned out that the people who had told me that tarantulas are delicious were lying. <laughs> um, tarantulas are disgusting and they taste like burnt hair. Maybe just the ones out of tins, though. Maybe it is true. I mean, a, a, tinned, a tinned pineapple is not the same as a real pineapple. So, you know, maybe maybe had I had one like hot off the fire, <laughs> it would have been different. Yeah, exactly. Well, definitely stay away from the, uh, the tarantula-like creatures here in Sydney because they are very, very venomous and no one <laughs> eats them. So. I would bear that in. <laughs> Mine. Thank yeah. you. Um, so if you found the story of the explorers uh, deep in the Amazon, where did you find the story for the good thieves? 
The good thieves came in part from my love of a good heist. I love stories in which multiple parts are brought together to create a kind of perfect clockwork hole, and when that hole is a crime. And I loved the idea of a group of children pulling off a heist. And I thought a lot about what makes a heist different from a normal crime, and I think it's a twist. If you think of all the great heist movies like The Sting or Ocean's Eleven, what they all have is they withhold a little bit of information that turns out to be key to the plot. So I wanted my book to have that as well, to have something that would make you sit up. Were there any sort of real-life heists that you looked at in the writing of this book? Or? I did. So I looked a lot at the kind of uh, cons and heists that have been going on. So way, way back to you know the earliest ones, um, my other work, when I'm not writing children's fiction, I hold a research post at Oxford University and I work on Renaissance literature. And there's this amazing story from that period of a man who tried to steal the crown jewels by dressing up as a vicar, befriending the person who looked after the crown jewels, stabbing him completely ineffectually, stealing the crown jewels, making a run for it, dropping most of them as he went, uh, trying to shoot the guard, missed the guard, was tackled to the ground and never made it out the door. Um, and then he was arrested, but then he was so charming that he didn't have to stay in jail. And in fact, the king released him and even gave him some land. So these sort of early stories were a wonderful inspiration for the idea of how a heist might go and how it might not go. My heist is much more successful than his. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's so funny, and I think that story you just told um, speaks to this, how... Um, heists are stealing, which is a crime, but we sort of look at them and we valorise them and we think, oh my God, that's so cool. Why do we do that with these sort of large-scale crimes? I think we love the idea of people being able to break the rules, of people being able to inject chaos into an unchaotic world. Um, but in my heist, so I don't want to give away too much, but uh, my main character, Vita, the thing that she is trying to steal already belongs to her. So the reason it's called Good Thieves is there's a moment where they say, um, it's not stealing of it's stealing back. We're good thieves. And Vita says, necessary thieves. I love that. There's a bit of a Robin Hood aspect here. It's very much so. I mean, she is righting a wrong rather than wreaking havoc. Absolutely, yeah. Um, if you were to partake in a heist, uh, what sort of wheel of the cog would you be? Would you be the person <laughs> descending on wires or would you be the planner as Vita is? I think if it was the kind of heist that needed someone to walk a tightrope, um, I would try and resurrect that skill. Um, otherwise, I would like to be the person who does the planning and doesn't have to do too much of the uh, running and dodging guns. I've never thought I'd be very good at shooting. I've never shot anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're talking about Vita here, um, and uh, we, we meet her in that passage that you read from the book, pulling into New York with her fantastic aim, bringing down that nasty seagull. But who is she? So Vita is someone who is based on many ideas. One of them is the noir detectives of the fiction of the 1920s and 30s and 40s, who often had, like Vita does, a physical impairment that makes them slightly different. So Vita has polio when she's a very young child, which leads her with a foot that curves inwards. And so while she's in hospital for years, she learns to throw. Her grandfather comes and to give her something to do teaches her how to throw. So by the time that she's 12, she can throw you know, a butter knife across the room and have it land perfectly upright in the butter. She can hit the postman from 60 paces with a ping pong ball. And she has a knife that she can throw. It's a pen knife and it was given to her. 
but she's never going to use it for violence because that's been drummed into her that violence will not be her weapon. And so part of the story is about her discovering in this hard world that she inhabits what is her weapon. So it's 1920s New York, right? 1920s New York, and so there are wild parties and flappers and diamonds, but also prohibition and, you know, the sort of gangster underworld that belonged to that. And so Vita operates in both those two worlds. And also she has a sort of passion for discovering. So she goes out into the city and she meets these other children who become her gang. And those children as well, I loved writing because there's so much fun to be had in writing people with a skill that you wish you had. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, but what was the uh, some of the most useful forms of research in evoking this 1920s New York, which is so glamorous, but then so sort of scungy and dark as well? So I read a book called Up in the Old Hotel by a guy called Joseph Mitchell. And it's real life accounts written at the time, mostly in the 1930s and 40s, in which he just records the monologues of everyday New Yorkers and the texture that you get, the food that they're eating, you know, pig's feet and sauerkraut for 15 cents. These kind of little details were so helpful in building this world. And of course, there are so many great novels that are set at the time, and there are so many wonderful films that evoke that moment. So there was a wealth of stuff to be choosing from. Yeah, fantastic. And sort of the other sort of main setting, I guess, is the castle. So the castle belongs to Vita's grandfather, and he's been swindled out of it after being um, widowed when Vita's grandmother dies. And uh, it's set up as this absolutely wonderful place where, you know, strawberries are growing in gargoyles, mouths and roses are climbing up the burglar bars and stuff. Was that inspired by any particular place, like this castle in yes. New York? Like? So this thing, so it's a very small castle, sort of ramshackle, falling down castle, because their family has fallen a hard time. They haven't been rich for generations. But it was a real thing. There was a craze in the very early part of the 20th century in America for buying European falling down monasteries, castles, stately homes, breaking them down, putting them in ships and shipping them across the ocean. People were writing about it in the news. Of course, the obvious ones are things like the cloisters in New York, which Rockefeller brought over from Europe. But like... You can go walking near the Hudson River and you'll see beautiful houses that were built in 1920 and 1930 and then a 14th century Spanish monastery just shoved down on the ground. And so that's very much what it's based on, this sort of mad eccentricity that when America was trying to build itself, sometimes the way it did this was steal (laughs) things from, from Europe. So, of course, that's the other idea of good thieves. Like, the castle was originally stolen from England. Yeah, that is so fabulous because you think of New York and you instantly think you know, steel and glittering skyscrapers. But then there's all these, like, castles that they sort of brought over as Lego. Exactly, (laughs) like Lego, exactly. And some of them, of course, were absolute tycoons and they had enormous amounts of money. But you didn't have to be that rich to do this. There were people who were just, you know, well off, but not like crazy, crazy wealthy, who would buy quite small mansion houses from England and just set them down so that they could feel that they had some history. Mm, Wow, that is so cool. Um... Uh, so you're talking about the sort of gang that Vita assembles for this heist and um, a, a source for some of her help comes from, is it the um, the Lazarenko circuit? Am I saying that right? Yes. Yes. So um, 
did that sort of come out of your love of the death defying that you just wanted to write about, you know, the circus and all of that? I have always been fascinated by circus and especially when I was a child by children in the circus. So I went, I remember when I was about 10 or 11 with one of my best friends to a circus and we saw it was like a really old fashioned big top one. But outside the circus, we saw these kids who were about six or seven or eight, and they were obviously the children of one of the performers. And they were doing backflips and contortions, and they were to us so much cooler than the adults in the circus. And so I wanted to write about the children who are learning these skills. So we have an animal tamer, and he will learn to uh, take on his family's animal taming companies. But... He doesn't just want that. He wants to build an animal show that has everything, that has squirrels and pigeons, that uses the wildness of the world and transforms it into a ballet. And, of course, he doesn't believe... His name's Arkady. He doesn't believe in making animals work who don't want to work. So horses and dogs are, you know, love to work, but elephants don't. And so part of his great passion is trying to... You know, a book in which each character wants to write a wrong the wrong that he wants to write is that he wants to solve the problem of this elephant in the circus i absolutely love those scenes and he's so talented as an animal (laughs) sort of wrangler as well which is amazing as you said so many children who can do extraordinary things in this book um as i was reading it it seemed that there was one phrase that sort of jumped out at me and i think uh, v sort of wakes up one morning besieged by hope that's the phrase you use which is so lovely and it made me think so is was hope one of those themes that you wanted to write this book with or is it something that sort of emerged as you wrote Vita's story? I wanted it to be about love and the way that love is galvanic and creates hope. So Vita arrives and discovers that this castle that her grandfather grew up in, which is not really worth anything in itself anymore, but the space in which it stands is worth money, has been stolen from him by a con artist uh, called Soradore. And... He has given up, and Vita sees that he's given up, and it panics her, because he's a man who's never given up. And so what she is trying to do is find a way to reclaim that which has been stolen. She finds out that there's a emerald necklace, and she believes the emerald necklace will be worth enough that they can get a lawyer, and the lawyer will be able to take the case and fight and get the home back. And so she, in finding her plan... And the plan is very central. She writes it down in a red book. And as she makes the plan, hope returns. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, Catherine, I would love to know some of the books that you read uh, when you were younger, um, maybe the age that sort of your books are aimed at that sort of inspired this love of reading and love of words. So um, one of my favourite children's authors isn't perhaps that famous outside of the UK. Um, her name is Diana Wynne-Jones. Oh, she's famous enough. Oh, good. I'm so <laughs> yeah. glad. I think she is probably one of the finest writers for children ever. Um, so she writes stories that are akin maybe in their sort of magical extravagance to Harry Potter, but she was long before Harry Potter. And what she has that Harry Potter doesn't is a kind of irony, a kind of sarcastic wit that I just love and a kind of nuance that perhaps Harry Potter doesn't have, much as I love Harry Potter. Um, And so I read her when I was about eight and have now still reading her now at 31. Um, And when I got my job at All Souls College, I was quite young, I was 21. um, And I had a supervisor within the college 
and his name was Colin Burrow. And the first day I met him, he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to write children's fiction. One day I want to write children's fiction, like Philip Pullman or Diana Wynne-Jones. And he said, Diana Wynne-Jones is my mother. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I know. No. I know. It was amazing. <laughs> like, it was like the ground opened. <laughs> I, um, so he occasionally tells me about what she was like. And to all sounds just, she sounds like the most exceptional, extraordinary, witty, wonderful woman. Yeah. Um, if people are listening to you uh, speak about Diana Wynne-Jones and uh, galvanised go and read her books, what do you recommend they start with? Right, so Charmed Life, which is one of the Crestomancy books, um, which is about a wizard and a castle and will sound somewhat familiar, you know, wizard school, but so rich and nuanced and unique. And then Howl's Moving Castle, which was made into a movie by Studio Ghibli, which is so worth seeing. But the book is maybe even better, although I think the film is exceptional. And it's about a house that can move and it has four different doors. It opens off into different worlds and it's just wild and strange and exquisite. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people know that because that movie is so famous and I really don't... It's one of those movies that people just don't realise is based on a right, book. Right, on a book. And yeah. of course the book is so different because of the Ghibli aesthetic is very different yes. from, from Diana and Jones who's part Welsh. But, oh my goodness. Yeah, I love the main character of that. He's such a drama queen. He's so fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about any uh, books that have Im- uh, impressed you lately, children's or otherwise? <sighs> So there's so much wonderful children's fiction at the moment coming out. Uh, someone I absolutely love is a writer called Frank Cottrell Boyce, who's very big in the UK. And what he does is write these very witty, uh, slightly crazy stories. So in one of them uh, called Cosmic, a young man, a young boy rather, he's about 13, but he's very tall. So people keep mistaking him for a man, goes into space. And it's sort of a mixture of absurd comedy and richly emotional, you know, the vision that he has of looking down at planet Earth from in space. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of writing I've ever read. Wow, that sounds so cool. It's fabulous. Um, I have one more question, and it's about, um, I think you're doing a session at the Sydney Writers Festival on Sunday, and it's called How to Survive the Amazon. Is That's that correct? Right. Um, if people want the, uh, you know, your whole uh, spiel of expertise, they'll have to go to the session, but what would be your main survival tip if someone plane crashes in the Amazon. (laughs) Um, When I went to the Amazon, we did a survival course. And at the end of it, um, we said, you know, what are the main things we should remember? And he said, look, you need to find water. Water is always going to be the most important thing. Um, And it's very hard to do, but you can start studying the vegetation, what seems to be richest, might be closest to water. And then we said at the very end of this course, uh, so do you think we'd survive? And he was like, no, you'd be dead in two days. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. I think this is uh, maybe the only podcast interview I've done that has ended with book recommendations and survival techniques. (laughs) Thank you so much, Catherine. It's so wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Good Reading Podcast. The Good Thieves by Catherine Rundle is published by Bloomsbury. The book is out now from all good bookshops, including Good Reading's online store at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.